Good morning, everybody. If you are visiting with us, welcome. My name is Peyton, one of the ministers. And uh, like Tracy said, we're going to be continuing this sermon series we're in, The Oddest Gifts of All. We're preparing our hearts to celebrate the birth of our Savior through this message series. And we're looking at these odd gifts given to the toddler, this baby Jesus, by magi and wise men. Now, the birth of Jesus is such a holy event. We recognize it. Even culture recognizes it as a holy event. But it is also an event that happened thousands of years ago. And it can be difficult, maybe even for some in this room, you can see the significance, but you're trying to connect what that significance has on your life today. What, what does the birth of Jesus have to do with my life? It's easy for us to picture it, but why? And it's easy for us to picture it because, well, many of us have had the picture put in front of us of the nativity scene our entire life in this season. How many of you, I, I'm curious, how many of you, show of hands, own a nativity scene? Put your hand up. Proud. Okay. You own a nativity scene. Keep it up. Keep it up. Because I, I have another follow-up question. How many of you own more than one nativity scene? Keep your hand up. Okay. We've got a couple here. How about two nativity scenes? Three? You got three? Okay. Got four? Five? Okay. We're going to stop at five. Okay. <laughs> so everybody that was over one, you know it only happened once, right? <laughs> like you just... You just need the one, but hey, t I, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But the scene is familiar to us, right? We, you have Mother Mary and Joseph. They're leaning over the manger with baby Jesus swaddled inside. You have a cow or a donkey in the wings of the barn or the, the little shed that is in your scene. You have a, a star or an angel on the pitch of the roof. May, and, and then, if, if you get the extended version, you have... Three old bearded men with flowing robes holding out gifts. The magi, the wise men. Now, Tracy kind of revealed to us that we don't actually know how many wise men or magi there were. The text doesn't tell us that. We assume there are three because three gifts are given, but we actually don't know how many people came to worship Jesus that day. Here's something else that completely blew all of my categories, is that we don't actually need to be picturing an infant Jesus by the time the gifts are delivered. It's actually a toddler Jesus. The Greeks actually had two different words for infant and toddler. And in the text that we have, the word toddler is given. Now, for me, that changes everything. Because how many of you either have or know somebody close to you who has a two-year-old? Okay, yeah. Changes everything in the story when Jesus is two years old versus a baby, doesn't it? Right? I used to judge parents who had two-year-olds before I had one, right? You'd be in a restaurant. Your kid would be banging silverware on the table. They'd be crying out loud. And I'd be like, come on, get your kid together. I judged you hard. I did. And then I had one, right? And you know what? You want to know what I learned by having a toddler? You don't negotiate with terrorists. That's what I, that's what I learned. 
You just, you can't. When Arlo, and it's rare, but it happens. When Arlo starts making a fuss, I'm doing anything. I'm like, take my phone, take some candy. Do you want a pony? Like anything just to stop, please, anything. So you have these wise men bowing down to a toddler. And they offer Jesus the oddest gifts I, I think I could ever even imagine in my mind. Let's read the text. Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 10. When the Magi, when they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child, the toddler. They saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. How did they do that? Well, they opened up their treasure chest, and they gave him gifts of gold frankincense, and myrrh. Now, we're going to talk about the practicality of those gifts, but just at face value, those are some odd gifts to give a toddler, right? That's, you, you just, even back then, it would have been a little strange that a toddler would need things like this. And so what I wanted to do is I wanted to help you feel this story a little bit. So I went ahead and generated a list of odd gifts that you could receive this Christmas. Now, disclaimer, this list has zero spiritual value. So don't look for any kind of connection. I just want you to feel it. And I might give you some ideas for your Christmas shopping this season. So an odd gift that you could receive this year are a hand puppet of a squirrel. Now, <laughs> I don't, one, I don't know why you would need this. Um, I, I'm also kind of freaked out at how much that actually looks like a squirrel. I think Arlo, Arlo loves squirrels in our house, and it's a pretty good deal. 868, you could gift this. And if you open that, I imagine you would say, that's a pretty odd gift. I don't know why you thought I needed this. Here's another gift that um, you could gift somebody, our big feet slippers. Now, Darian says I don't need these because I already have big feet. Thanks, babe. <laughs> but you could, maybe... Maybe you, I don't know, maybe you have small feet. Uh, if you don't like the skin color, you can actually get them in green. Don't know why you'd want them in green, but you could. Maybe, I don't know if it's the Hulk or something. But again, 1139, not a bad deal. Odd gift, but not a bad deal. Here's one, probably the oddest of them all. You could get a water painting of Nicolas Cage as a duck. <laughs> I don't know where you're hanging this up, why you would need it. But if you opened it up on Christmas, I imagine you would think, it was pretty strange, and you'd be odd as well for giving that gift to somebody. And then finally, the last one, probably my favorite, is a Ronald Reagan-scented candle. <laughs> now, the, I, and I don't think it's the most expensive, the second most expensive. You don't realize how close I was to purchasing this. My mouse was hovering over the Buy Now button because I was so curious, what did Ronald Reagan smell like? I need to know what these people know that I don't know. I need to know this information. You're welcome. My impulse, I was able to siphon it. We don't, our house doesn't smell like Ronald Reagan, but yours could this Christmas. That is an odd gift. The Magi gave Jesus gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Odd gifts. Gold, uh, just like today, has a monetary value. We'll talk about that next week of how more than that, though, gold actually symbolizes Jesus's kingship. 
Last week, uh, Tracy talked to us about frankincense, this gift of frankincense. Now, frankincense has a lot of practicality. Um, It was used for healing both outside wounds and inside wounds, but it was extremely valuable. It's practical, but frankincense was also burned as an incense, symbolizing Jesus' step into his holy priesthood. This week, I want to talk to you about myrrh. Like frankincense, it's a valuable gum-like substance. grows on trees. It's mentioned actually 17 times in your Bible, both in the Old and New Testament. Occasionally, it's used as an antiseptic. Jesus was actually given myrrh mixed with wine on the cross. It would be used to numb pain. It's used to clean out uh, disease and illnesses, things that aren't good for you. It's a cleaning agent. Uh, Another very common ingredient uh, that myrrh was used for was embalming. Whenever they embalmed, myrrh was the main ingredient that they used to embalm the dead, something that they would do for Jesus, we learn from the text. So this, this substance is extremely valuable. It has practical use even for a young family with a toddler running around with scrapes and bruises and sicknesses, but even more so. What I want to talk to you about this morning is an Old Testament prophetic passage in Isaiah 53. And I want to show you how myrrh represents Jesus, the suffering servant, who was born into the world so that he could suffer and die on the behalf of all of us for the forgiveness of sins. Imagine today... If I could tell you who was going to the Super Bowl in February, you'd be pretty impressed. There, you might be able to find people who can do all the you know, numbers and crunching and predictions and get a pretty high, but I could tell you exactly who's going to be there. In fact, I'm not just going to tell you exactly who's going, but the final score. I'm going to tell you who's going to win. You'd be pretty impressed. You may not be a betting person, but you'd want to be my friend all of a sudden, right? Yeah, you'd be all in on that. Okay, now imagine football holds its value for hundreds of years, and I could tell you the team and the score of the Super Bowl game 700 years from now. It wouldn't have any value for your life. (laughs) It'd be like, okay, fun little nugget, but it'd be pretty impressive. And that is essentially what is happening in Isaiah 53. But before we read that prediction, let me tell you about a problem, because we have a problem. And Isaiah lays that problem out. Go ahead and turn your Bible to Isaiah 53. Isaiah lays this problem out to us in verse 6. Look at verse 6. It says, we all, all of us, nobody can get off of this list. Every single one of us are like sheep who have gone astray. Each of us has turned our own way. We are like sheep, like Sheep. Say it with me. We are like, we are like sheep. That's not a compliment. <laughs> Arlo loves sheep. We read our books and there's always a little sheep in there. He goes, bah, like it's like cute and cuddly. He loves sheep. It's not a compliment to you though. We, we went to the zoo yesterday. It was a beautiful day, wonderful weather. We went and all the animals were out moving and the Brevard Zoo, which we normally go to, they recently got lions, right? They have three male lions and they are awesome. Like you're there and even though they're like in the distance and they're sleeping, you can just feel the, the royalty, the majesty, the power in that giant animal. You're not like a lion. 
On the way to the Lion exhibit, you actually pass by the eagles, right? They have bald eagles there. I mean, these things, their wings are spread out. They're just sleek and shining. Their feathers are shining on the sun. We have a whole country that is resembled by this bird. It's a powerful bird. You're not like an eagle. What are you like? A, you're like a sheep. It's not a compliment. Sheep are not the sharpest tool in the barn, are they? Now, you can train a lot of animals. You can train a dog. I've seen dogs do amazing things. I've seen an elephant paint a picture before. You can train a goldfish to go through a hoop. You can train hamsters to go across tight ropes. I've seen somebody, believe it or not, train a cat before. And if you can train a cat, I was convinced you could train anything. But when you go to the circus, do you go and are you impressed by the sheep show? No, right? You're not impressed by what sheep can do. Nobody's posting pictures about all the amazing things that their sheep can do. Because sheep are known for three major things. Number one, they are weak. They are weak. They are absolutely defenseless against their predators. Wolves, coyotes, the likes. I think the only defense I could think of is they have the thick wool, and so a predator thinks it's grabbing onto it, and it rips away, and it runs off. That's the only. They don't have claws. They don't have fangs. They don't have quills. Nothing to protect themselves. In fact, sheep, whenever they're being chased, they don't dart in different directions to run away and confuse their predators. They group together. They basically create a buffet line for wolves, and they're like, hey, here we are. Charles down there, he's been eating a lot and he has a limp. I choose him, but really, you can get any of us if you want. That's what sheep do. They are weak. Number two, sheep are witless. They're witless. They literally follow each other into danger. I, I read this story, and I'm not lying when I read You can look this up. This is a real story. In 2005, a shepherd uh, in Turkey had 1,500 sheep, 1,500 sheep. Every single sheep followed the other off a cliff. Every single one, 1,500 sheep walked off a cliff. The sheep literally did what your mother told you not to do. That question, if all your friends jumped off a bridge, would you do it? The sheep said, absolutely, here I go. That's what the sheep did. 400 of those sheep died whenever they hit the ground. Luckily for the 1,100 after, they had a nice plush landing to land on at the bottom. <laughs> That was bad. I'm sorry. But sometimes reality is just funnier than jokes. But sheep are weak, sheep are witless, and sheep are wayward. They're wayward. They like to wander. Hey, where are you going, little sheep? I don't know. You know, I'm looking for happiness over there. There's a brand new gadget over here I got to have. Sheep are always, always looking for the greenest pasture. They're always moving to something better, and they end up in the jaws of debt and depression and despair. When the prophet Isaiah says, you are like a sheep, it is not a compliment. Instead, he's saying, we need a lot of help. We keep trying to go about this whole thing on our own, to fight our own battles, and we keep ending up on our backs, too weak to stand up, too witless to ask for help, and too lost to find our own way home. We are like sheep. Isaiah continues, picking back up in verse 6, All of us are like sheep. We have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. Listen to this. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Have you ever been hurt? mistreated, rejected, 
overlooked, unjustly criticized, misunderstood. Jesus has been there too. And Isaiah continues and prophesies this about him. Look up at verse 3 in Isaiah 53. Just go up to verse 3. It says, He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows and acquainted with the deepest grief. We turned our backs on him. We looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weaknesses that he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. We thought he was getting his punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins, but no. He was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. You know, whenever you see a a baby born in a manger and you hear the story of Jesus being born in the nativity scene, it's easy for you to recognize this is a holy event. Whatever this is, it's holy. But the world struggles to figure out what's the significance. Jesus was born. Jesus died. Jesus was resurrected. What does that really mean? Why does that have any effect on my life? Why should I follow Jesus because of that? Why should I devote my life to him? because of something that happened thousands of years ago. It's because whenever you understand the magnitude of his suffering and the depths of his love, you won't bashfully say that you're a Christian to your coworkers anymore. You won't just attend church occasionally. You won't just say your prayers whenever you're about to eat a meal. No, whenever you understand what Jesus did, His declaration of divine love, the only reasonable response that you will be able to have is to wholly follow after him. So here's what I want to do with you this morning. I want to relive what happened that day. Now, some of you in here have heard this story your entire life. But we all need to be reminded of it. Every single one, every single week. With the Lord's Supper, we remind ourselves of this story. It needs to be put in front of us every moment that we can. Others of you here today, you've heard this story before, but you've done nothing with it. It's just a story at Christmas time that you've heard, you know it, your parents taught it to you, but your life isn't any different because of it. And so maybe today is your chance to actually respond to what happened. And then I've stopped assuming with our world of what they know and don't know. And so I would imagine there are even people in this room who've never heard this, at least not in its totality, about what Jesus actually did that day for you. So let's relive it. It actually didn't begin on a cross. It began in a garden. Jesus' beginning of his crucifixion and the very end of his crucifixion, it ends in a garden scene. This garden is the Garden of Gethsemane, where he is taxed with sorrowful trouble. He is at a breaking point. His anxiety is just coming out. Blood is literally dripping from his brow. There's a medical term for this. Um, I try. I looked it up. It's on my page. I have no idea how to say it, and so I'm not going to butcher it right now. But there's a medical term for this. It only happens, you only bleed whenever you experience extreme shock and trauma. Have you ever had so much shock and trauma that you've literally sweat blood? that your capillaries around your sweat pores, they leak blood into your sweat. 
It's so much that Jesus actually says, I am at my breaking point. I am overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And then Jesus does something remarkable, is he does the only thing he knows what to do. Have you ever been so anxious, so stressed out that you can't even get your mind straight? I imagine that's what Jesus is doing. That's what's happening. Because he goes to the prayer that he gave his disciples, the Lord's Prayer where it says, not my will, yours be done. It's the only words Jesus can get out of his mouth. Not my will, yours be done. But what is God's will? God's will is for torchlights to light up that dark garden. And they come and they arrest Jesus and haul him off to a trial where people literally look Jesus in the face and lie about things that he didn't do. They tell things that are untrue just because they want to see this man killed and Jesus stays quiet. He doesn't need to justify himself anymore. He sits and he waits to be unfairly tried and sentenced to death by crucifixion. Not death that is rotting away in a prison cell somewhere. Not a quick death of like a beheading like his cousin John the Baptist but the most excruciating version of death that wasn't to kill somebody, it was to make an example of somebody. That's the death Jesus will experience. And so his torture doesn't begin with his body, it begins with his shame. He's completely stripped of all of his clothes in a culture that is that rides on honor and shame. Whenever you strip somebody of their clothes, you are basically saying, this person, they no longer are human. They are no longer like you. They are like an animal, and we will treat them like that. And they do. They gather brush from the local landscape with thorns about one to two inches long, and they twist together a crown to honor Jesus the King. And they press that thorn, those thorns into his scalp, but they're not done. They then have their way with Jesus spitting on him, striking him across the face. They whip him in the back and beat him over and over as those thorns go deeper into his scalp. Isaiah actually implies in his text that they rip his beard out and they beat him so bloody that even people who love him the most don't even recognize him. Not that they're even there to see him at this point. Then Jesus is loaded up with the cross that he would die on and told to carry it to his death place. I actually tried carrying a hundred pound weight from here to Sexton Plaza a couple years ago. It was the most terrible experience I've ever had. And I am young and fit and I wasn't beat. Jesus had to carry his cross. No matter how painful or excruciating he felt, 650 yards known as the way of suffering to the hill of Golgotha, the place of the skull. There, they laid the beam down and Jesus on top of it, and they took about seven-inch nails, rusty and sharp, and they began pounding them into the wrist and the ankles of Jesus. Now, don't imagine one single swing got it through the muscle and the bone and into the wood. It would have taken multiple painful, excruciating swings of a hammer, radiating pain through Jesus' entire body. They then hoisted him up on an instrument of torture that is reserved for slaves and traitors and the most wicked version of people. And there Jesus hangs next to two criminals, him, one of them. Excruciating pain, he's dying on the cross. He becomes weak 
from loss of blood. You ever, your, sh- your blood sugar's low and you feel faint? Imagine blood, your life being dripped from your body steadily, weaker and weaker. He hangs naked in the sun as it burns and beats on his body, his bloody and beaten body. He fights for every breath in the form and the shape of a cross. You actually can't breathe whenever you're hanging that way. It collapses your lungs. So you actually have to pull against and push against the nails to lift yourself up to catch a breath only to sink back down into those nails. He would have been suffocating, bleeding out, And then it wouldn't have taken long for his shoulders to be dislocated, still fighting for his breath. And that was only the beginning. The most painful part was when the innocent one, the one who never sinned, who was born into the world to only love and to save it, he bore the sins of the world into himself. He became everything vile and filthy and unholy and demonic. He absorbed it so that the world would be seen clean compared to him. And God in his righteousness and holy, unable to be in the presence of sin, separated himself from Jesus. And he was alone. Away from the people who loved him, away from the God who sent him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They offered Jesus at that moment some twisted compassion. They mixed myrrh with wine. And they offered it to him to numb the pain. But Jesus refused it. Why? Why would Jesus refuse the little bit of peace that he could have in that moment? Because he didn't want to numb the pain. He wanted to finish what his father sent him to do. The first cry of a baby in a manger. The last cry of a man on a cross. Saying, it is finished. Isaiah 53 verse 8. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. Nobody cared that he died without descendants that his life was cut short in midstream. But he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong. He had never deceived anybody. But he was buried like a criminal in a rich man's tomb, Joseph of Arimathea. Skip down to verse 11. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all of their sins. You know, this is what sets Christianity apart from any other religion. Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, New Age, you you do your count. Just go down the list. It separates it. It's the bloody death of a helpless victim. That's what distinguishes the gospel. That God loved you so much and didn't just say that he loved you, but showed it by giving his life on a cross. And myrrh, this embalming material presented to a toddler, at Jesus at his birth, declares that this child is born so that he would die. 
And that is the beauty of the gospel, however strange it might sound to the world. That is good news beyond measure because it shows what God is willing to do for you. To how far to the ends of the earth, to the ends of all pain and suffering that he would go to be with you. That he would send his son to be crushed for our rebellion so that we wouldn't die, but that we would live. I don't follow Jesus because I have to. I don't follow Jesus because I have nothing else better to do or because I need an insurance policy when the world ends or because I enjoy the great people that are in this church. That's not why I follow Jesus. I follow Jesus because of what he did, because of what he gave me, because of the gift that was given me, the gift of myrrh to a baby Jesus reminds us of the greatest gift that was ever given, hope in eternity with our Heavenly Father. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for the gift that is indescribable. God, we can use words and talk and emotions and feel it all we want, but it's something that we will never fully grasp. It's something we forget too often. It's something that we put to the side during the holiday season. We focus on other things, on gifts and trees and snow. But God, help us in this season remember the gift, the gift that was given, the strange, odd gift of myrrh that reminds us of the greatest gift that was ever given. Father, help us be convicted by the vile filth that lives and exists in our heart. The thing that Jesus, the reason Jesus had to come was because of the pain that I bring into this world. Father, in this season, help us remember that what was done has already been done. Jesus has already gone to the cross. He's already done those things for me. The question is, what do I do because of it? What is my response to the gift? Why leave it? Why take it? Why remember it? Why forget it? Why pass it on or I hoard it to myself? What is my response? Father, may we never forget the greatest gift that was ever given, the gift of our Savior Jesus, his life, his comfort. Everything that he had to offer, he gave it. Father, what are we willing to give? What are we willing to give in return? We say this prayer in the name of our Savior Jesus, who made this possible, who gave it all for me. In his holy name, we offer this prayer. Amen.